0: Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, I am super excited to welcome my dear friend, TEDx speaker, best-selling author and master of mindfulness, Lori Cameron. Lori's book, The Mindful Day, is a delicious breath of fresh air, helping people weave the concept of mindfulness into their everyday lives, working, parenting, and being human in the modern world. Lori is also the founder and CEO of Purpose Blue, where she helps busy professionals nationwide incorporate mindfulness. Today, she is going to share with us her wisdom on how to live more authentically, intentionally, and with more self-compassion. Lori, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's so great to be here, Lucy. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Let's talk about what mindfulness is not first. When I introduce the concept to a patient Someone who, for example, is having trouble with anxiety or sleep or relationships or inattention at work. I often get the eye roll, Dr. Bride. mindfulness, that's so woo-woo. Didn't you get that off a billboard or the mugs in the checkout line at TJ Maxx all say mindfulness today or something like that. People think it's cliche, and I will say back to my patients, with all due respect, Mindfulness is a 3,000-year-old trend. So let's think about what it's not, and let's think about what it is. So Lori, can you start by helping dispel some of the myths about mindfulness?
1: Yeah, and I know those folks, and I hear those same protests and objections mm-hmm. myself. Well, let's start with talking about mindfulness versus meditation. They're often confused. Mindfulness is a state. It's a capacity to be present and aware. And all of us, every single one of us already have it. We're not trying to cultivate something that we don't have. We already have it. Already always is a phrase that I love. It's just the capacity to be tuned in and present with whatever's happening on the outside and on the inside. So We've all had those moments where we've watched kids performing on stage when, you know, in in an elementary school auditorium, and you're just completely tuned in. You might even notice joy arising in the body, you know, delight, you feel connected with everything around you. That's what mindfulness can feel like. It can also feel like when you're holding the hand of someone that you love who's dying, you know, that tenderness, that sadness. Mindfulness is not about blissfully skipping through a field of daisies followed by a parade of unicorns. You know, it's not this place or state we're trying to achieve out there that feels unattainable. It's simply noticing your direct experience, unfiltered, clear, without bias, without conditioning. And that's not hard. That's where meditation comes in. So meditation or meditations with an S is simply a set of exercises. So there's a lot of different meditations that we can do. Many are tested by science. And those are the meditations that I teach at companies and universities and so on. Meditations are a way of, one, becoming familiar with your mind. So you actually see when you're caught up and catastrophizing and ruminating and judging yourself or judging other people or feeling miserable, you actually develop the muscle, the skill to be able to catch it that's one form of meditation. Meditation can also strengthen the brain. We can build the muscles in our brain, in particular, the circuitry connected to attention. And so we can get better at paying attention. And that's really the most powerful skill that we can cultivate is attention. So there's a lot of meditations on training attention. And then there's another category of meditations that help us cultivate empathy and compassion for others. So we can actually exercise our mind and our hearts so that we're better able to connect with each other, which I would say relationships are pretty fundamental to well-being. Relationships, community, the quality of our capacity to drop the armor, drop the veils, drop the judgment, and really open the heart. So those are some of the categories of meditation. So mindfulness is the way we show up, our way of being, And the meditations are exercises that help us build that capacity.
0: And by the way, I am one of those skeptics. Not that I don't believe everything you're saying right now, not that I don't have every app that was ever invented on my phone (laughs) for mindfulness, and not that I don't recommend it to my patients. I'm just not good at it. And I don't like not being good at things, I will freely admit. It's hard And as you know, when you meditate or try to, as I'm sitting there like actually thinking about what just happened on Twitter, and I'm like, oh, we gotta meditate, gotta meditate, you're still and you're at peace and calm or trying to be. And sometimes hard things come up, which is of course the point, and is what I'm trying to do myself, is to acknowledge dysfunctional, racing, self-destructive thoughts, see them from a distance, let them come in, and then process them instead of doing the
1: easy thing in the modern world, which is to avoid. Well, it's the easy thing because it's the conditioned thing. So the thing that you've practiced for decades is, like all the rest of us, you're no different, is avoiding, denying, suppressing. Let me crack open a bottle of Chardonnay or Rosé would be the wine of choice. now. Now we're moving into cold weather, so we'll probably switch to red. So we escape, right? We don't want to feel what's difficult. You're no different. And what we're doing with training the mind is training our capacity to not escape what's hard. The news that I wished we all learned or the information or the billboard that we could all see when we're little is that being human is really hard. I wasn't taught that. We're not really taught that. We all experience loss. We experience pain, suffering, shame, feelings of not being enough. And we start to develop patterns to escape difficult feelings. One of the things that I'm working on, you as well, I hear, is the feeling of not doing something well, not measuring up. And that's not our fault either. That's how we're trained in school. We're ranked. We're given grades. We have to show up on a bell curve. Some people are picked. Some people are not. It's a deep message in our society that we have to measure up. And so we want to avoid things and activities and people and situations where we're going to fall short of that. And for a lot of people, that might feel like meditation. But the fantastic news, let me bust that myth right now, is that we're not trying to do meditation a certain way. We're not trying to get an A in meditation. We're not trying to do it right. Meditation is about meeting yourself just the way you are. Whoa. We don't really learn that, right? So it's about making a date with yourself, making an appointment with yourself and saying, you know what? I am going to commit to hanging out with myself, as silly as that may sound, for five to 10 minutes a day. And I'm just going to find a place that I enjoy sitting or standing or walking or hanging out in your garden. And I'm just going to be quiet. I'm going to unplug. I'm actually going to reduce the incoming. Wow, what a refreshing oasis that'll feel like, right? I'm just going to sit and allow whatever is here to arise. That's really fundamentally what we mean by meditation. I'm not going to dig around and say, oh my God, what's difficult? Here you are, I'm making space, come on up. I'm just going to breathe. And so we use the breath, actually, as a way to quiet the mind. Another myth of meditation is that it's emptying the mind or stopping thoughts. No. Not true. That's impossible. When I teach meditation to kids, I say our brains are like a popcorn machine. It's just constantly popping out thoughts. Ears hear, eyes see, the brain thinks. That's what it does. And we learn that we are not our thoughts. We're actually the spacious awareness that is like a vast blue sky. And thoughts are coming across the brain like clouds, like weather systems. This is a powerful idea to understand. A lot of people never unhook the idea of thoughts with who they are. So we are not our thoughts. We are not our emotions. And with meditation, we learn to experience that as true. So we learn the felt embodied sense of who we really are. And that might sound a little woo-woo. Like, okay, Laura, you're saying I'm spacious awareness? Yeah, I am.
0: (laughs) Well, it's so interesting you talk about it like that because... First of all, I love the concept of making a date with yourself. It's really, again, I'm going to sound woo-woo here, like honoring yourself and empathizing with yourself and giving yourself permission to be who you are at that moment without competition, contest, or judgment. The other thing that's so relevant to health and what I counsel patients on regularly is trying to make space between the thoughts and the feelings and the automatic either behavior or secondary thought meaning impulsivity is something we all deal with particularly kids i'm picturing those kids in the audience you're talking to mm-hmm. fidgeting and you know wanting to whack their friend over the head as they're <laughs> sitting there on the carpet if you can think about your thoughts as a product of your brain and then you are the person between the thoughts and the reaction and give that space some air and attention but then we are giving ourselves agency. Absolutely. We're actually giving ourselves agency. And what people struggle with in health, whether it's losing weight, quitting a bad habit, starting an exercise program, is that gap between intention and execution. And what people have trouble with in relationships with other people or with themselves is this sort of reflexive thinking. You know. I did something bad. Therefore, I am bad. Therefore, I'm going to just go from my social media account to my wine, to my bed, to my work and not yeah. be conscious about how I am and how I think. So it's really about kind of excavating that space that is where the
1: action is, That's where the power is. Yeah. And a lot of the keynotes I deliver at companies, I use the word power in the keynote headline because it's about power. And the Austrian psychologist Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, was in the Nazi concentration camps, and he noticed that some people had more agency, the word you use Some people had more freedom to respond in a way that came from a place of choice. And the space that you're talking about, which... I want to emphasize is already there. We all have it. The key is how do we access it? So he said between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our response. And in that choice lies our freedom and happiness. So in the field of well-being and healing, in having relationships that nourish us and being able to direct attention on purpose, this is what meditation helps us do is to choose where we're placing attention to deliberately choose the attitude that we're using to see so it's attention plus attitude plus intention these three pieces make up mindfulness and we're learning to do that that is a skill that can be trained and at the end of your life when you're laying on your deathbed i think a key question is what did you pay attention to what did you pay attention to in this life And I think about that often, because I've lost a lot of family members. You know, I feel very lucky. I almost feel like I'm on borrowed time. My dad died at 44. One brother, Johnny died at 37. My brother, Mark died at 39. And now I'm in my 50s. And I think, wow, I've outlived them all. And what am I doing As the poet Mary Oliver says with this one wild and precious life. So I'm very committed to what I'm paying attention to. I can easily go through the day and look at where I fell short and the balls that I dropped or where a friend or partner disappointed me or maybe a deliverable or project that I handed over to a client wasn't perfect. It's very easy to do that. And I think many of us, that is the orientation of our mind.
0: So let's go back. I want to ask you the question, where did this passion for and practice of mindfulness come from? I know you've experienced Quite a bit of loss and grief in your life. Tell me about that.
1: So, when I was 16, a junior in high school, my father had a sudden heart attack and I was with him. It was a Saturday morning. I actually knew CPR. I was actually the youngest CPR instructor in the state of Maryland <laughs> through the Girl Scouts. I mean, wild that I knew CPR. And I gave him CPR. The paramedics arrived and he didn't survive. And that event woke me up to the fragility. Of life and how you think everything is a certain way and your people are around you. And then all of a sudden, this core figure in my life was gone. And I started to really look at psychology and human flourishing and resilience. And that's what I studied in college and then went on to build a career from it. So, kind of started from that very traumatic loss.
0: What was that like for you internally, having witnessed your father die, tried to revive him? and him dying in your arms. Describe that chapter of your life if you could.
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly did the what if, should I have, did I do this wrong? Did I do it fast enough? Did I do it right? So I I really needed to rely on my doctor to talk me through that, that I did everything I could. And wasn't it wonderful that I was there? Because if I wasn't there, I really would have thought I could have helped him. So I had to wrestle with the question of acceptance. What's in the realm of our influence and control? And how do we relate to things that happen that we can't control? And interestingly, that's one of the most frequent topics that I'm asked to speak about now is acceptance. I work with our federal intelligence community here in D.C. Major things happen that makes it really hard to get up in the morning. I work with physicians and people in healthcare. I work with business leaders, and I work with teenagers, and the strategy that we can train in noticing when we're resisting what is, we're resisting what's happening, we know that resistance to reality amplifies stress. And the body, as you know, more than any of us, will activate the threat response system. Neurotransmitters will surge through the body, will have a response And this creates the opposite of well-being, right? It creates tension, contraction in the body. The mind narrows. We don't have a broad perspective. And we isolate. We turn away. We withdraw and avoid. All humans have to face death and loss. It's part of being human. And we can either cultivate the capacity to accept what's here, allow our sadness and grief and all the emotions to arise. So there's an allowing skill that we build with meditation where we're saying, okay, can I be with this? What would it be like to allow this tsunami of sadness? That's how it feels to me sometimes. Like, especially with losing my brother, Johnny, there's a wave of sadness that washes over me that is so powerful. I am grateful that 10 years before he died, I was trained in mindfulness by a Vietnamese engineer in California, Cho Yoder, and she was a senior Dharma teacher with Thich Nhat Hanh. And I started learning from the monastics that we can expand our capacity to be with what is. We bring acceptance and self-kindness to ourselves. I never would dream that I would work with senior partners of major professional services firms teaching acceptance and self-compassion. And that's what they want to learn now.
0: Well, acceptance, sometimes people confuse as a giving up, a throwing in the towel, abandonment of someone's core principles, when acceptance is really a core tenet of, for example, AA. When someone is trying to quit alcohol, when they have a toxic relationship to it, they have to accept that they are powerless against alcohol. Similarly, when you as a 16-year-old are going through a trauma and I can only imagine the what ifs that you lived in, you have to accept that what happened happened and that you did everything you could and that it wasn't your fault and that it was the plan of the universe in some way. Absolutely. And then acceptance is, and I'm learning this too, and I try to help my patients understand this, acceptance is not a giving up. It's a recognition of reality, painful as it may be, and it's actually the birthplace of agency. When you yeah. can accept things you cannot change, it gives you the brain space and the physical power to then put your resources, time, energy, money, what have you, into the things you can change.
1: And there's a science to accept. Yes. Let's talk about the strategies of acceptance and the skills that go into it. The first is mindfulness. We have to be present with what's happening. Mindfulness helps us see clearly without pushing things away. We talked about that. Okay, this is what's happening. It is what it is. The next piece is being able to tune in to the emotions that are arising because of the thing, because of the diagnosis that you got from your doctor, because you didn't get promoted or you lost your job, because your kid is suffering in school, whatever it might be. We learn to actually acknowledge, acceptance involves acknowledging acknowledging the emotions, naming them. We name them to tame them, and we allow them to be. Emotions are physiological sensations. They're not thoughts. They rise in the body and they dissipate if we don't suppress, deny, and stuff them down. But acceptance, true acceptance even goes further. We actually say, okay, this is here. This is how it is right now. It is what it is. I encourage so many of the people I work with to have a slogan, have a mantra, and say, This is here right now, to name it. And what that does is it dissolves the tension in the body and in the mind. We open up our capacity to see clearly, to meet ourselves with self compassion, to be compassionate to other people in the situation instead of turning away, denying running away, avoiding, because that's the habit of a lot of us. But we're actually leaning in. We have an orientation to others. Compassion makes us courageous. And we're able from this place, it's a place of calm, clarity, and compassion to take wise and skillful action. And that's your point, that acceptance creates agency. It's not passive.
0: And it's also where we get healthier. It's where blood pressure drops. It's where heart rate falls. It's where we can actually sleep through the night if you're not getting hot flashes like I am. If you're wound up, inattentive, it's where you physically improve your health. It's not to say that people don't need blood pressure medications to treat their blood pressure, but like anything in health, it's a constellation of solutions. And one of them is mindfulness. Yeah. So describe a moment where you are caught up ruminating, anxious, overwhelmed, and you're in the emotion, you're in the soup instead of doing what you know to do. And what is it that clicks or maybe doesn't click sometimes so that you know, oh, it's really time for me to kind of stop riding the roller coaster of these crazy thoughts. let's talk about
1: that. When I started training in mindfulness almost 30 years ago, the first whole part of that journey, that skill building or that capacity growing was about the mind and thoughts and i want to share that because if you're new to meditation or new to mindfulness that might be the way you think about it especially because the word mind is in the word so we might be noticing thoughts thoughts like ah i blew it or i dropped the ball or i'll never get this done i started to learn and recognize what my teacher jack cornfield taught me i started to recognize my inner soundtrack my playlist mm. mm-hmm. so we all have playlists right on our phone we each have them in our head So my phrases that put me into the spin might be different than yours. One of mine is, I don't have enough time. And when I hear myself saying, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough time, that's when I know I'm in overwhelm. That's when I know I'm spinning. So I recognize the thoughts that are just reoccurring thoughts coming from mental patterns that do not serve me. They actually put me in a state of being ineffective. They increase my stress and lower my well-being. I encourage each of you to start paying attention to your thoughts. That's what meditation teaches us how to do, to witness our thoughts. So thoughts are one marker, and they help me realize I'm in a spin. The second one are the signals that our body gives us. And I would actually say, so now that I am, I don't know, a couple decades down the path of training, I've realized that it's really the body that keeps the score. There's a great book with that title um, from Bessel van der Kolk. If we can learn to live in our body, our body is the experiencer of life. We're really trained to be comfortable being in the mind. So that's kind of where I started with recognizing thoughts and that soundtrack. But it's really the body. When I notice that my heart rate is increasing, when I notice that my breath is becoming shallow or my hands are sweaty or I'm in a meeting and my throat is clenching and it's tight, or for me, I get really flushed in the face, I get red. When I notice the signals from my body, I call it below the line, coming from a model from Joseph Campbell. We can be above the line or below the line. But then I realize, wait, I'm below the line. I'm not in this spacious, clear, effective way of being. One of my favorite quotes from a CEO is, the success of an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. I have that on a slide. I use that with a lot of executives. So, you know, we're all trained to be successful. We want to be successful. We're going to have strategies and frameworks and blueprints and all the things. And really, our success out in the external world depends on the quality and condition of our internal state. And that's trainable. Let me talk about this above and below the line.
0: Please do. I love. So I'm a very visual person. And you always do so well with these visuals.
1: Yeah, I'm visual too. Yeah. So I'll even bring in a couple more. If you all imagine a line in front of you, imagining you even have a whiteboard in front of you and you draw a line, we can simplify how we think about ourselves as humans, as in any moment, either being above the line or below the line. So when we're above the line, we are open, aware, we're committed to learning, we're curious, we're receptive we're compassionate and kind, we lean in, we're tuned in, we're courageous. It's a way of feeling in the body. We feel expansive and relaxed. When we're below the line, we are closed. We're defensive. We're attached to our point of view. We're committed to being right. We are tense, anxious, impatient. In the body, we feel that contraction. Our mind is full and busy. Our heart's racing. We want to withdraw, avoid. That's where I hear the thoughts, I don't have enough time. There's a scarcity mindset. I don't have enough money, time, resources. I can't do it. I'm falling short. I share this model almost all the time. On Zoom now, I do so many keynotes on Zoom, I actually have participants build it. I have them throw adjectives using the annotation tool above and below the line. They're so creative coming up with phrases, and it's fantastic. I usually end up taking a picture. But it's a simple model. We don't even have to use the jargon mindfulness. We don't even have to say aware. We can say to our teens, to our patients, to our loved one. God, I'm really below the line right now. You wouldn't believe the meeting I just got out of, or you wouldn't believe what happened here, or I didn't get enough sleep, or I've been eating junk, or in all the things that diminish our resources, that lower our well-being and put us below the line. And when we're there, we are not resourceful. We're not able to connect, collaborate, be creative, solve problems. So when I notice I'm below the line, I say, whoa. And I remember I noticed that with the body. And then thoughts are right there too. And then I say, all right, what do I need right now? And that question is a transformational question for your life. This is based on the science of self-compassion, which I have a book on Audible called The Power of Self-Compassion. So I encourage you guys, if you're interested in deepening that capacity to look into that. Self-compassion is our ability to pause, check in with our experience, whatever that is, racing heart negative thoughts, feeling hurt, feeling overwhelmed, beating ourselves up, feeling like we failed, and just breathing, regulating the nervous system, using the breath, or taking a walk, or stepping out in nature, or listening to your favorite piece of music and dancing in the kitchen. There are many healthy ways we can access that pause we talked about. So we pause, we access that, we name what's here, whoa, here this is, oh my God, and then We say, What will best serve? That's the key question. That's where we access wisdom. Wisdom comes from this deep place that we all have, this place of inner knowing what will best serve us in the moment, to restore us, to move us above the line, or to serve whoever we're with. So that's the compassion question is what will best serve.
0: I love what you said in the very beginning, Lori, that you can't get an A in mindfulness. It's like I say to my patients. You can't win this appointment. You know, come as you are. (laughs) We are works in progress. This is just a dot on the line of your life. I think there are probably people who are listening to this and, first of all, feeling so calm just by listening to your voice, because I personally love listening to you talk. I have a little voice in the back of my head that's going, yes, yes, oh, yes. And then I kind of want to take a nap because I feel so calm and relaxed. (laughs) Not because I'm bored, but because I'm relaxed. There are probably people listening and thinking, "Oh my gosh, I don't think I can ever get there. I've got 3 kids, I've got yeah. a busy job. Yeah. I am going through some sort of other stressor. That's impossible. I can't get there." When what you're saying is that it's not a contest, it's not a competition, it's not a race. And so I think it's important to lay out that this is a work in progress, trying to incorporate mindfulness, having dates with yourself. And you can still have, for anyone out there wondering if they're still allowed to have a glass of wine, you can still have a glass of wine. Avoidance of hard things is still part of the normal human condition. And not every glass of wine is about avoidance. No. It's sometimes about having... Savoring a good glass of wine. Yeah. As I say to patients in my office, there's no either or it's a and both. That's right. You can have a glass of wine and practice meditation. You can be on Twitter and you can send a snarky message out and still be in the process of working on mindfulness.
1: That's right. Let's talk about this feeling that so many people have, which is that all sounds really great, but you have no idea, A, what yes. my life looks like, right? and B, what it's like inside my mind. I'm pointing to my head right now. Like That sounds really great, but yep. you don't know what it's like in here.
0: You're right. I think one of the things people resent about doctors is that we are this authoritarian, shaming entity, like lose weight, exercise more, you drink too much, what's your problem? Which is the opposite of caring for other people. First of all, I'm not a moral expert, nor am I perfect at any of those things I just mentioned. And so my job is really to partner with the person, meet them where they are, and help them with tools and information on their terms. If I say to someone, you know, you really need to exercise five days a week for an hour, and they're working two jobs, and they just got divorced, and they've got a bunch of kids at home, they're going to be like, screw you.
1: Let's talk about that. Let's Let's talk about the myths that meditation and mindfulness takes extra time. And that's actually why National Geographic asked me to write the book, The Mindful Day, because they knew their audience. And they're like, you know what, people don't have time to go to a meditation class or go to the Himalayas or go to a retreat. They've got really busy days. So my focus in life is to share practical ways to weave moments of being present and aware, savoring life skillfully working with difficult emotions, healing relationships that have gone astray, being able to focus at work so we can do deep work and not multitask, which is a myth. We can bring presence and awareness, connection and kindness to the life we already have. That is a big takeaway today. We're not adding things to our busy life. We are shifting how we are relating to our experience, how we're relating to the pile of work on our plate. How we're relating to our teenager who's on three screens at a time when they should be walking the dog, right? We want to shift how we're relating. So, mindfulness isn't so much about doing, it's about being. We're still doing all the things, we're just doing them from a different state of being. I love that. A state of being that's calm, that's clear, that's kind, that's accepting. I want to give
0: you an example of something I started doing after I read your book. I'm always running late to work, I'm always running late in general. I'll be at the stoplight. And you're like, oh, my God. Like, so, you know, I've decided that at stoplights, this is a perfect moment for me to sit there and feel the air conditioning or the heat, whatever, on my face. Sort of like notice that sensation of breeze. Just a couple of days ago, I was sitting at a stoplight and I just saw this cute kid kind of taking his time across the crosswalk with his dad. And the dad was like, hurry up, hurry up. And just watching the adorableness of their relationship and just sort of breathing that in. Beautiful. And then I love that example. Before I knew it, someone was like meh 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 because I was sitting there watching this cute kid like pick himself up off the crosswalk. I think it's true. It's not something we're asking ourselves to do as extra work or another chore, and it doesn't have to be fancy or formal or in the Himalayas, as you said. It can be woven into your everyday life, and it's about a frame shift. It's about being
1: and not doing. Yeah, that's right. And I do want to encourage people to weave in the pause. And I want to give people two very short tools, very short practices that they can do. And I want you to weave in a pause every day that involves moving your body, particularly in nature, if you can do it. And if you're in a city, if that means walking outside, I did it today, downtown in DC, And I just looked at the trees and the sunlight hitting the trees. And that might sound a little California. Yes, I used to live in San Francisco, but it's actually just part of our human nature. And we know from the science of nature that it calms and regulates the nervous system. So before I entered the building to come up and record a podcast, I knew that tip, that hack, right? Pause and breathe, look at nature, just ground my body, clear my mind and walk in. One practice that if you take one away and start experimenting with, do this one, is called a three breath reset. And when you feel overwhelmed, you asked me earlier, what do you do when you're spinning and overwhelmed and feeling out of control, which I do get, I do this practice. The first breath, we're actually going to bring attention to the breath. I'm going to explain the three steps and then we're going to do it. The first one, we're going to deliberately take attention. I want you to think of attention as a flashlight. It's the most powerful skill you have, and it's limited in capacity and duration. So, we want to direct it to the breath. Why? Because we want to get it out of that crazy monkey mind, that busy spinning mind with all the thoughts and all the rumination, and bring it into the body, into a physiological process of breathing. So, step one, attention to the breath. Step two is relaxing the body. I talked about below the line, we contract and get tight. We actually want to drop the shoulders. I get really tight in my jaw, relax the jaw, just taking a deep breath, kind of expanding. This is a counter move. Think of yourself as a Jedi master to that hunched over way we get when we're over our laptops and over our phones and rushing through the day to the finish line. We're actually going to counter move that by relaxing the body. And the third breath is when we go up to that cognitive center of the brain and say, what's most important now? Or... You could say, Where am I above or below the line? Or you could say, What's the most essential thing for my day? What do I need to focus on? So that third breath is where you can ask a skillful question. You're really checking in and you're resetting to your priorities. It's really easy to either feel overwhelmed or be hijacked by the latest email or find yourself like mindlessly scrolling Instagram. So when you're in that moment, you pause and you do the three breaths. Attention to the breath, relax the body, and then ask what's most important now. So let's do that. Let's, let's do just it. Take a little minute. Let's do, to it. do it. So everyone who's listening, yeah. I would
0: encourage you to just focus in on this moment. Yeah.
1: yeah, just stop what you're doing. You can close your eyes if you like, but this is a real life practice. You don't have to close your eyes when you're doing this. But just do it for fun if you can, if you're not driving. In the first breath, just say breathe to yourself. Just taking a nice deep breath in, feeling the inhale and the exhale, attending to the breath. Now we're going to say center or relax, just relaxing the shoulders, the jaw, the hands, feeling expanded, bringing more spaciousness to your interior condition. And on the third breath, we'll just say, what's important now? What matters most? Or if you're in the midst of a lot of difficult emotions, just say, what's going on? What's my direct experience right now? Just naming it. And that's it. Three breaths. And what we're doing here is accessing the space between stimulus and response. We're creating that space so that we have freedom to choose how we want to show up next. It's like putting down a shaken snow globe. When we put the snow globe down and all the little bits of snow falls and you start to see the little Swiss chalet emerge, what we're really doing is we're able to see clearly. So this is a way to put down the snow globe. Now you can do that short practice wherever you are, 24-7. And at the same time, I encourage you to practice mindful breathing meditation. You can access me for free on the Insight Timer app just look up Laurie Cameron as the teacher. I have a lot of different meditations. I talked about how meditations are exercises. It's like doing a circuit at the gym. You can exercise all the different pieces, self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, compassion, knowing yourself, healing yourself. By doing these different meditations, they're free. You just look me up on that app. But I encourage you to meditate the research shows minimum effective dose doctor is 12 minutes a day. And I know all of you are like, oh, 12 minutes. You said we didn't have to add anything to our day. And I'm just saying that 12 minutes a day is like taking your mind and body to the gym. You're building capacity, strengthening that circuitry in the brain so that when life gets really hard, you can pause, you can recognize that you're hijacked and pause and do that three breath reset more easily you're building muscle memory, you're strengthening capacity. If you can do that, if you want to experiment from now to the end of the year, then say, you know what, I'm going to start doing five minutes a day for a couple of weeks. And then I'm going to move up to 10 minutes a day. And then I'm really going to be an overachiever. I, I tricked <laughs> you, you there because I, <laughs> I know you guys can't help it. We all want to be an overachiever. And then kind of move up to 12. That's the research from Amishi Jha. It's very powerful in her book, Peak. Lori. I can't thank you
0: enough. I could talk to you forever because there's so many life lessons here and there's so much wisdom. Again, I think the occupational hazard of being human is reacting impulsively and unconsciously living. And you're here to say that we can take control to the extent that's possible over our thoughts and our feelings and our actions and how we feel and how we show up. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be no. fancy.
1: And we have the capacity already. Yeah. It's already always there. Isn't that powerful to think about? Yeah. We just have to take that pause and access it. We have more ease. We have more joy. So we talked about that glass of wine. We actually are able to savor it, to smell it, to taste it and enjoy it. And I really want to emphasize that, that we are wired with a negativity bias in the brain that's part of our survival evolutionary biology. And so we're wired to notice the negative and take in the negative. I want us each to make intentional and systemic deposits on the positive side of the ledger. So mindfulness is not just about dealing with difficult emotions and minimizing stress. It's also about amplifying joy and savoring what's good and taking in the good as a short practice that I love, or noticing acts of generosity or compassion or fun, like your story about being in the car. I love that story. So we can also do that. I want you all to realize we've got a very short life. I've learned that by losing both my parents and two of my brothers. And I'm on a mission to help people have more joy, connection, spaciousness, and ease in this one very short life.
0: Lori, you're bringing joy to me right now. And I'm so grateful that you joined me today to share your
1: wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. And I encourage your listeners to find me at PurposeBlue.com. I've got a newsletter, which I occasionally write. I don't have the fantastic consistency that you have, but I'm aspiring to be more like you every day. And I will announce retreats and opportunities for people to deepen their capacity to be here. I love it.
0: Lori, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.